Okay, turn your Bibles one last time to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. I went back and I looked because I wanted to see exactly how long. Uh, I actually began this study. We didn't put anything out on sermon audio. Uh, I don't know what happened. We might have had problems with the video or problems with the audio, but they're, they're not out there. Uh, the first chapter is not out there uh, from this particular study. But according to my notes, we started this study uh, on uh, December the 28th. 2019, so <laughs> we're coming up, we're within about five or six months of being four years going through uh, the book of Hebrews, but uh, I, I tell you what, I, I'll be honest with you, I have enjoyed this study uh, so much and uh, have received so many uh, encouraging comments uh, through our sermon audio uh, page and through our YouTube page, and uh, people have just been uh, very responsive to these truths that we've sought to set forth again as we've gone through the book of Hebrews. And I kind of hate to see it come to a close, but I know we'll we'll move on to something else. I'm not real certain uh, exactly where I'm going to go uh, next week. <clears throat> you keep me in your prayers this week because this is this is a, a new deal. I. It's been a long time since I've had to write from scratch uh, both a Sunday Bible class and a Sunday worship service. I've had my notes from in the past that I've just been able to go back to and edit and change and put some of the new details in that I've garnered through the years of, of study from God's Word. Uh, but uh, where I'm thinking and planning on trying to go uh, beginning next week, it's going to be I'm going to be writing two messages a week for them will actually be writing. So you keep me in your prayers. But <clears throat> we come back, this, this, this lesson, this closing lesson, we'll just call it what it is. This, is. this is a closing exhortation. This is part two. We taught part one a couple of weeks ago. But we want to just jump right in. I'm not going to give you any introduction this morning because I do want to finish this book. I don't want to get stranded with the last three or four verses. So let's, let's look at this thing together. Look at verse 17 and uh, <clears throat> 18. Verse 17, he says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is profitable, that is unprofitable unto you. You know, I was telling somebody this this week. You know, I, the the role of the gospel preacher is a is a such a, an immense responsibility. It really is not to try to pat any of us on the back because all of us, if we're honest, every man that's been called to preach the gospel, uh, they're sinners saved by God's grace. They all have the same problems and difficulties that every man and woman that sits in this church deals with on a daily basis. I can tell you, knowing my own heart as I do and living with myself as I have ever since the Lord taught me the gospel, I knew no better when I was in ignorance and unbelief, but knowing the, 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 the remaining sinful nature that's in me, yeah, if it were not for the grace of God, uh, there's no way that I could stand up and talk to you about anything. Now, if, if, 
you know, I've, I've discussed this in the past, where your hypocrisy, truly the word hypocrisy means to preach and demand a higher level than one has attained. That's what hypocrisy is. That'd be if I stood up here and told you that I'm, I'm righteous and I'm holy and I've got my character and my conduct into conformity perfectly and completely, which, I mean, only a fool would make a statement like that. But it's not a hypocrisy to preach what God's Word demands from all of us and what tells all of us that we have and possess. And as a preacher of the gospel, you know, I deal with these things on a daily basis. You know, I mean, you, you think about uh, what the Lord calls His servants to do. He calls them not to promote themselves, not to establish a name, not to establish a following. This is, this is not about me, Richard Warmack. And it's not about Grace Baptist Church specifically. We're not looking for numbers on a tote board. And we're not looking to be the most popular church. Matter of fact, that's one of the problems and difficulties today is even among believers, among justified saints. I, it kills me when I hear somebody say, well, he is my favorite gospel preacher. Really? What's different? Huh? I don't care if he stutters like Mel Tillis or he has the delivery and cadence of a stumble bomb. If Christ is preached, it's not about he's my favorite preacher. He makes me feel good. He, I love the way this dude talks. <laughs> it's does he exalt Christ? Does he magnify his person and his work? Because I tell you, if you go away from a, of a gospel sermon talking about the speaker, you've missed the subject, and he's missed the subject that he's supposed to preach. We're to go away from what we study in God's Word, seeing our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's a huge responsibility, to make certain that everything that we say, everything that we do by way of worship, directs the sinner's mind, God's redeemed mind, to where? To who Christ is, to what he did, to what he accomplished, to where he is now, to the fact that he's coming back to get us, and if he doesn't come back to get us in our lifetime, he will call us forth from the dead one day. The dead in Christ Jesus. And that's the thing. In the gospel church, the Lord has established a, a certain order now think about this, because our God's a God of order. He's a God of small detail. He's established a certain order and, a, and a, a certain order for the preservation of and the edification of His people, His church. And He tells us here, now think about this, and I, and I say I, I hate to even make this statement, but it's a reality. He tells us, and it's to obey them that have... The, and he's not talking about slavery here. He says, obey them that have the rule over you. Have the instruction or guidance or the responsibility of guiding and teaching and directing your heart and mind and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. So church members, who are we to obey? The pastor. Now, again, I want to be very careful here. 
This obedience that you and I are called on to the gospel preacher that the Lord has graciously given us in our specific area or location, it's not a blind, implicit obedience. And it does not mean, and I, I want to be very clear on this, it does not mean that whatever's said by this man in this pulpit or what's said by some other man in some other pulpit, that just because that man said it, you are to follow it and swallow it without any study on your part to make certain that what that man said squares with the Scriptures. There's too much of this that men and women in my day, and I'm grateful for the fact that I, I think, and I'm, I might be shooting my, overshooting my, my thoughts on this, but I'm quite certain that the vast majority of those that sit in Grace Baptist Church, you don't just accept something because I've said it. And I wouldn't want you to. And the man who wants that kind of allegiance from his people, you just... I know some guys that think that just because they say it, that settles it. Look, the, the call is clear. This is your responsibility. My response, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. Listen to me. It doesn't say listen to show yourself approved unto God. I know people spend all their week listening. You ought, and listen, if, if, if you have the time, listen to gospel messages. That's important. But you know what's more important than just you listening to somebody on Sermon Audio or YouTube or Facebook Live, listen to these things over and over again? Because look, these words in this book, who are they written to? They're not written just to me to speak to you about on Sunday. This love letter is written to who? To all of us. And he tells all of us, we're to study this book. And we're to study it in such a way that we're able to sit under the one who has taken the role to preach the gospel to us and make certain that what that man says squares with God's word. For God's sakes, if I, if, if I ever go astray on anything, it's your responsibility in this church... And I would encourage you women, say something to your husband, then send your husband to me. It's your responsibility to correct me. Or at least, said, let's, let's sit down with the Word of God and make certain what you said is true. I, I'm, not, I'm not being mean or, or aggressive or argumentative. Let's square things with the Scripture. That's important. And see, it, you think about this, this obedience just required of us. It's qualified. You know who qualified our obedience to the, those who've been given the rule over us? Our Lord Jesus Christ did it in the Great Commission. Who did he have there with him? He had his disciples, those that were going to go out into the world and preach the gospel. And we take it as a secondary call to all men and women without exception. What did he tell them to do? Go ye therefore... And teach all nations. I'm grateful that there was a group of men at the beginning of the gospel era after our Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to glory that went forth with the gospel and declared it. Aren't you? And I'm grateful that God in His providence directed them not to, the, to Asia Minor to go that way, but to go to the 
go to the west, to go to England, and then across on a boat and come over here and proclaim this glorious message. But here's, here's the qualification. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Who? The disciples that are going out to preach the gospel. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now listen to me. If, a man, if any pastor, myself included, departs from the faith, in other words, he doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ, then you're not under any responsibility or obligation to obey him, and you're certainly not to submit yourself to him and to the message that he declared. How do we know that? Second John, verse 9 through verse 12. If any man abide not in the doctrine of Christ, yet not God. If any man comes to you, how did he state it? We just preached on it a couple of weeks ago, and it's completely slipped out of my mind. How did he state it? Listen. He says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and antichrist. Look to yourselves, and that we lose not those things which... Uh, which we have wrought, but that you receive, we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. And if there come any unto you, well, they, they come to you. Bring not this doctrine. Receive him not into your home. Receive him not into the house of God. Neither bid him God speed, for he that biddeth him God speed is a partaker of his evil deed. See, the work and design of these leaders, these pastor teachers, as Paul referred to them in Ephesians chapter 4, is to take care of our souls, to guard over you. That's the responsibility of the gospel preacher, to instruct them, feed them, to promote faith in Christ, his blood, his accomplished work of redemption and obedience, and to seek to preserve all God's redeemed from every evil doctrine and practice that can come their way. And he says that they do so that they must give an account. Hold on. <laughs> that mean if... if, if if you fail, I, the, I go down on the boat too. Is that what he's talking about? He doesn't mean here that pastors are popes. That you follow them blindly. But what, what is a pastor? A past, the word pastor means servant. He's a servant of Christ in his body. And see, what he's talking about here is a present day-to-day -day account concerning our state and our progress, and nothing is more pleasing to any pastor, any pre pastor teacher, than to give an account filled with joy. Listen to John. He said to that woman, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children... Now, why were they his children? They had heard the gospel from me. And he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my, my children do what? What are they doing? Walk in truth. You see that? 
And for you or I to refuse to hear and judge by the gospel preached by God's true ministers or to refuse to make distinctions concerning our, between ourselves and others by God's testimony preached to us is to refuse Christ and it certainly is grieving to who? To God's servants. It's been in charge of you to teach you and guide you and direct you. Verse 18, 19. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. What is he praying? He's who, the author here, and I think still think the author's Paul, but it really makes no difference. Whoever the author of the book of Hebrews is, his prayers, what does he want to be? He wants to be back with these people. And he's asked them to do what? You pray for me that I'll be restored to you, be able to come back and be with you and be present among you. And you think about this. Okay? This is important. This request, and I, I, it's children of God, I'm telling you. And I see this on, on social media all the time. Do you want pagans praying for you and your family? Huh? I, I tell you, I mean, you think about that. For, for a, if, if you've got a prayer request, who should you want to pray for you? I don't want my brother praying for me. Pam <laughs> said, don't say that. It's just true. I don't want any of my family members praying for me. I don't want any of the friends that I have in this world praying for me if they know not this Christ and this gospel because who are they praying to? And yet people just would pray for me. Well, if they're worshiping another God, who are they praying to? Uh-huh. And you think about that. And so for Paul or the writer of the book of Hebrews to request their prayers for him, it gives us a pretty clear evidence that he had confidence that what were they? Now we might ask some people that we believe are justified saints to pray for us who might if effectively in the long run prove themselves to be what? Just like everybody else. But all I can go by, all you can go by is what? By what they tell us. All I can do is take you at your word. If you've told me in good conscience that Christ in his righteousness alone is your only hope cause of salvation, that you do not look to anything done by you or in you, anything accomplished in your life, you don't look to your faith as any part of your salvation, you've looked and hope in Christ alone, that's all I can, according to the scriptures, what are you? Or what have you at least professed to be? Now, whether you love it and have truly embraced it, you've truly been born of God, that's a different thing. But all I can do is take you at your word. That's all I can do anytime anybody comes to me about baptism. If they've, they've told me they've rested in Christ as the Lord, their, their righteousness just like that eunuch, is there anything that forbids me from being baptized? Paul, Philip asked him, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And what did he do? He answered, Jesus is indeed the Christ, sent a God into this world. 
and he, they too went out into the bat, baptismal pool. Right? That's who's to be baptized, believers. Justified saints. So he, he shows here that, that he's confident that they, they are believers. Now he's already said, I have, I have a better hope for some of you. <laughs> so he's writing to those. He, he isn't asking those that are, have departed or are in the process of departing to pray for him. Who's he asking for? Those who believe. Those who know Christ. Those who can, because of their oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ, go before his throne of grace. And he's pretty confident that not only are they justified saints, but he knows they love him. Paul tells us here that he has a good conscience toward God. Well, do you wrestle with your conscience as much as I do mine? I tell you, between my own thoughts and Satan's interjections into my mind and my continuous struggles against the law of God, because you can't help but drag yourself back occasionally under that law and throw yourself under the wheels of it. My conscience in that sense is not good, but I have a good conscience toward God through Jesus Christ my Lord. See, a good conscience, what is it? It's one founded on this. Here's the only way we can have our conscience. We've already studied it. We have our consciences purged from dead works to serve the true and living God. So what's a good conscience? It's a conscience that's founded solely on what Christ did for you. His blood. His righteousness. And to have a good conscience, according to what the writer here tells us, it's one who deals honestly with all men concerning doctrine and their spiritual state before God. Paul wrote to those at Galatia, and he said, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom this world is crucified unto me. And I am crucified unto this world. Now, verse 19, it's an interesting verse. You think about this. I beseech you the rather to do this. What? Pray for me that I may be restored to you the sooner. So verse 19 shows us this. Yeah, it, it, it's lawful. Now, think about this. It's lawful to have earnest desires for and to pray for things that might not come to pass. He's saying pray for me that I can come to you the sooner. Well, I didn't really look into it. I don't know whether he made it back down here or not. I know a lot of times in his other epistles, he told people he wanted to get back to them, and he never made it. And I bet they were praying toward that end. And I tell you, that's what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we pray for things at times that it, it just doesn't work out, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with that. Now, that doesn't mean pray for a new car, a new house, or a million dollars in your bank account. That's not what we pray for. Because when you think about it, for us to pray for the things of time and sense, you know what that is? That goes totally contrary to 1 John chapter 2 or 3. Now, 1 John 2, what does 1 John 2 tell us to do? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For everything that is in the world, what is it? It's of the world. So we're not, we're not looking for things. Is it, we can pray for our health. We can pray for my health. 
Otherwise, if that's sinful and evil, we need to do away with the prayer list and asking us to pray for these people who have health issues. See, all we can do is it. The secrets of God's will belong to him. And our prayers don't change it. You hear that? My, not one prayer that I have ever offered, not one prayer you've ever prayed, not any of the prayers of any of the saints of God throughout time have ever changed anything. Because true prayer, think about it. I mean, what does he tell us about the, the, the prayers even of his own children? In Romans chapter 8, he says we don't know what to pray for. And he said if we did know what to pray for, what we don't know how to pray. We think we do. How many of our words have just gone up like so much strange fire? praying about things, worried about things, and anxious about things over which we have no control whatsoever. Well, then why pray? Prayer, the prayers of God's children, is God's appointed means to accomplish his will. I t in reality, it comes back down to this. Whatever's going to happen, this sounds bad, but it's the truth. Whatever's going to happen in my life or your life, in this world, the train is on the track running 9 million miles an hour, and you can't change it. Stand there in front of this train of God's purpose with your hands out and say, Whoa. And if it's God's will for him to woe, he'll woe. But if it ain't God's will for him to woe, what's going to happen to you? We're to pray according to his promises. Remember, his apostles said, Lord, teach us to pray. And when he taught them to pray, the main thing that everybody misses in that Lord, the model's prayer is what? Thy kingdom come. Which came first? Thy kingdom. Which kingdom? United States of America? England? China? No. The kingdom of righteousness. Thy kingdom come. I will be done on earth. Now listen to this. Here's your will done on earth as it is where? In heaven. Look at verse 20. Here's a summary of grace. Now the God of peace. Don't you like that statement? Now the God of peace. It brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, here we go, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. In verse 19, he asked them to pray for him. Pray for me that all will go well, that I'll soon be back with you. Verse 20 and 21, you know what he does? He prays for them. He prays for them. And what does he pray? He prays what's the whole mystery of divine grace. You think about this, the very heart and substance of the whole doctrinal part of this epistle is included in this verse. Because he starts off with this. How does he refer to this? His God, our God, the God of peace. Not, you know, I, I'm 65 years old, 
And there has never been peace on this earth in my 65 years at its best. Everybody, all these religious people now and all the political people, they worried about we headed to World War III. Well, let it come. Let it come. If it's his will, just like World War II and World War I, the Korean War, and every other war that's ever happened, it happened to God, according to God's sovereign will and purpose. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It was his divine will. But in spite of all the conflict and all the warfare among men, our God is a God of peace to his people and to his people alone. Why? God alone is a source of peace. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said? He said, not as the world gives peace. What peace? He said, my peace I give unto you. I always think about those angels that appeared where the shepherds were in the field by night. And the heavenly hosts began to sing. And part of the song was, Peace on earth. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. I know at Christmas time, everybody gets caught up. That's about giving everybody a gift. Right? Or feeding them. No. Peace on earth. Where was the peace? It was in that infant that those guys were going to see, that they were directed to go to. That's, God, that's God's goodwill to man, to his people. You think about it. God is the author and source of this true peace which passeth understanding. He purposed it. He affected it. And he applies it in, through, and by the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? That brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this this last Wednesday night, and it's always been kind of strange to me. You know, that... All three persons of the Trinity are said to be responsible for the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. It said here that God the Father raised him, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Who did God the Father do? It says in one passage that he was raised by the Spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I give up my life, I have power to raise it up. Well, how can all three be responsible? They are the true and living God. Right? What he's telling us here, this work of the resurrection from the dead, whose work was it? Jehovah's. All three persons of the Trinity. All the work of God toward Christ respected him as the head of his church. Everything that was done toward Christ, it, had a, it didn't affect him personally. It affected who? Who he represented who he stood in their place. And here's the thing, having satisfied Christ by his obedience unto death, having satisfied all the conditions of the salvation of his church, as their representative and federal head and substitute and surety, when he had finished the work, what God did? In his high priestly prayer, our Lord said this, before it ever happened, before he ever died, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, Thy son might glorify thee. And then he, then he said this next. Now think about this. Think about what our Lord's saying here. 
He said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. But now listen to it. With the glory, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Truly, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at the next phrase. The great shepherd of the sheep. This truth is again described by Christ's office. What is he? He is the shepherd of the sheep. His pastors, who you are to obey, what are they? They're not the shepherds of the sheep. What are they? They're under shepherds. They follow their Lord's direction. And see, you think about this. The safety and security and peace of the sheep depends on who? It don't depend on Richard Warmack. It depends on the shepherd. And if you'll notice here, he shows us that he died in his discharge of this office is what? The shepherd of the sheep. Remember what he said? Smite the shepherd. Why smite the shepherd? That the sheep may go free. That's, I mean, that's what John 10 is all about. We don't have time to go there. Go read John 10. Pay attention. He laid down his life for who? For the sheep. And because he laid down his life for the sheep, he said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Why? Because of what he did. Is the shepherd of the sheep. And you think about it. The whole gospel, as well as God's redemptive glory and Christ's mediatorial glory, you know what it's founded on? It's founded on the fact that Christ and his church are what? They're one. That's what, you think about this. I had a guy write me on the internet this week off of our website and he went on and just drove on and on about divorce and remarriage. Kenny was like, I should have sent it to you and let you read. I mean, he went on and on. And then he got down to the NS question. He said, can a person that's done this and broken their vow, can they go? Never any mention of Christ. Never any mention of redemption. Forgiveness of sin. Never any acknowledgement that we need forgiveness of sin. Just on and on about what he could do. I wrote the dude back and I told him you know, everything I know about the gospel and told him, I said, for you, to, for you to even imply that if I'm a good husband to my wife, that's one, that's one of these guys that I used to have a whole lot of respect for. I, I, I saw a, a meme, by, not a meme by him, but a post somebody posted by an author. I used to have all of his books on my shelf. A highly esteemed, reformed dude. And he said the way he knows that he's a child of God is not by, it, 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 this is what it's by, by how he treats his wife at home. <laughs> is that how you judge whether you're saved? We're one with Christ in the eyes of God's law and justice. And anything less, if I'm not one with Him, I'm done. You are too. God sees us where? If any man be in Christ, new creature. Outside of Christ, in alienation and condemnation, separated from God. 
Here's the next thing. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. God's holy law, what did it demand? It demanded Christ's obedience unto death as a surety of the sheep. He didn't have to obey the law personally. He wrote the law. He was the embodiment of the law. So why did he do it? He did it for the sheep. And then he justified and saved his people. How? Through his precious blood. Through his satisfactory accomplished death. Listen, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace, how, God? Through the blood of the cross. How did he make peace? Through the blood of the cross. By him, who? By Christ, to reconcile all things unto himself. I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. What's that? That's the just souls of just men made perfect that are in heaven or those of us that are down here on this earth still. And there he goes again. What does he refer to us as? <laughs> We've got a high opinion of ourselves. How does God talk about us? Remember what he said in Romans 9? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me thus? And he said, whether well, it's things in heaven or things in earth, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked work, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. God's promise of eternal blessedness for the sheep, it was conditioned not on the sheep, but what? On the doing and dying of the shepherd. What he would accomplish. And Christ satisfied the conditions, and the God of peace, what did he do? Because he had satisfied them, he raised him from the dead. And see, that's the proof positive. We know he satisfied law and justice on his people's behalf, because if he didn't satisfy it, God wouldn't raise him from the dead. Because he raised him by virtue of that very righteousness that he established on behalf of his people. Verse 21. Make you perfect, complete, in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this... Verse, the apostle assigns to God alone the work. The work of making us both to will and to do that which is well-pleasing in his sight. One verse pops in my mind when I think about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Here we go, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's God working in us both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It just slipped my mind. <laughs> For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that you listen, not you might walk in them. People in my generation are trying to walk in good works. He says his people, they should walk in good works. They do. And he assigns all the glory of it too. To whom be the glory 
forever and ever. He works in us to will and to do of his good will and pleasure. And if you'll notice here, it reveals that the will of God, it's the will of God which is the sole result of our obedience. Any obedience we have, where do we get it from? If you ever honor God in any area of your life, you didn't just work that up. It's God working in you. I always, when I think about that, I always think about the Apostle Paul when he made that statement about who is a Paul, who is Apollos, who is Cephas. And then he made this statement. He said, I excelled every one of them. <laughs> that sounds prideful, doesn't it? I did more than any of the other. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. What was the next words out of his mouth? Or off of his pen. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. That's why. God hadn't worked it in me and never done it. Let you can't conquer one thing, nor I, in this life, unless God works it through us. Period. Now look at these final thoughts. I'll give you this real quick and we'll finish up. He, verse 22. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. What's exhortation? It's admonishment. This, this whole book's been about what? admonishing these people to look where? You ought to keep one. When you read this, the word of exhortation, you know what the word of exhortation is? Laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we run it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and completer what Paul does here is he lovingly exhorts us to take heed that no sinful prejudice hinders us in receiving this letter, which is an exhortation. You know, we tell you the only people who get mad at the preacher are people that are been confronted from the Word of God by the truth and reality of what's there. They're the only ones that get. And their, their anger is not really directed toward the pastor, though he's the one who gets it. Who's it direct? They're not receiving the exhortation. It's just our nature to not like to be told what we should do. Huh? And yet the Lord God, what does he exhort you to do? He exhorts us to pray without ceasing, does he not? He exhorts us. That's, this is an exhortation to every child of God. He exhorts us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. He exhorts us to not lie, to not steal, to not cheat, to not be filled with malice toward our brethren. He exhorts us to love our wives. Wives love your husbands, right? He exhorts us gather with God's children. That's his exhortation. Why does he exhort us to come to worship? Huh? Why, why, does, why, did, why is it the Lord's exhortation for the children of God to always put themselves under the preaching of the gospel? What occurs here on Sundays or anywhere where the gospels preach? It's not do this or you're going to go to hell. Or don't do this or you'll go to hell. Or do this and you're going to go to heaven. That's not what's preached here. Out of grace and gratitude, honor him. Obey him. Verse 23, Know ye that Brother Timothy is set at liberty 
with whom if he comes shortly, I'll see I'll see you. He mentions here the name of a true believer. And in other epistles, he names false professors. Remember, he said one time, mentioned Demas as a brother, and then the next time, what has he said? He said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. But here he talks about Timothy. And he says, Timothy set at liberty. What does that mean? Timothy had been in jail over the gospel, had been in prison. And he said, now he's set free. And he says, if he comes here soon, I'll see you along with him. Verse 24, salute them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. What does salute mean? It means to, to hail, to show love to, show appreciation. You know, back then it was a kiss on the cheeks, what it was. I think with us, it's a, as we hug one another in love and appreciation and respect one for another. And then he closes this epistle the way he closes every one of his epistles. Grace be with you all. Amen. By grace, what does he mean? All the blessings of God in Christ Jesus. Because that's all we have. Everything that we have, everything we are, everything we ever hope to be is found only one place. It's in him. Okay, you're dismissed, the worshiper. I appreciate your presence.